We'll hear argument next in Case 12, 1493, Abramsky v. United States. Mr. Dietz. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 2009, Bruce Abramsky went to a gun store in his home in Virginia and purchased a firearm. When he did so, he filled out all the required Federal paperwork providing his own name and identifying information and passing a background check. He then traveled to his uncle's home in Pennsylvania and delivered the firearm to a licensed gun dealer there. That gun dealer required Mr. Abramsky's uncle to fill out the exact same Federal paperwork and pass his own background check before taking possession of the firearm. But despite doing precisely what Congress established as the process to buy a firearm intending to sell or give it to a lawful gun owner in another state, the government charged Mr. Abramsky with falsely stating that he was the actual buyer of the firearm when he acquired it. And that term, what actual What happen if two people walk into the gun store, one person hands the money to the other and says, buy me that gun? Yes, Your Honor. Is that not actionable? Your Honor, in the According to your theory? Your Honor, in the circumstance where there are two lawful gun owners, that is permissible. I think a, a good way to illustrate that is to consider the government's concession that in that hypothetical, if the two people walked into the gun store and the person looked and said, I'd, I'd like that gun, and points to the counter, and then the person what's, standing — What's truthful about saying — Please buyer. finish what you were saying. I, I, I didn't understand what your point was. Yes, Your Honor. And in that circumstance, if uh, the, uh, the person standing at the counter then says, I'd like to buy uh, that firearm uh, that the person indicated, I'm going to give it to that person, then even the government concedes that in that circumstance, uh, everything about that sale is perfectly lawful, and the, per- the buyer can take the gun, hand it to that person standing next to him, who would leave the gun store with the gun dealer and the government having absolutely no idea who that person is or where the gun is going. I- I'm sorry. So you're saying that in that case, the gun dealer runs the background check on the person who hands the gun dealer the credit card, as opposed to the person who will be the actual recipient of the gun? Is that what you're saying the statute requires? That's correct, Your Honor. I think the government concedes that as well, in the gift circumstance at least. And there's certainly nothing in the Gun Control Act that suggests that Congress was distinguishing between those two circumstances. Well, in the gift gift situation, but Congress requires certain information from the buyer, whatever that means, right? Yes, The the dealer has to record the name of the buyer, right? Yes, Your Honor. And the address of the buyer and do an instant check on the buyer. Yes, Your Honor. Now — why would, why would this Congress have wanted those things with respect to the person who is just the straw purchaser, not the person who uh, — the person who is actually going to acquire the weapon? The reason, Your Honor, is that uh, this legislation, the way Congress designed it, is not focused on sort of the end point. It, it's not concerned about where a gun is actually going, who's ultimately going to receive it. What Congress was concerned about was the starting point, because as part of the key political compromise of the Gun Control Act, There were two competing interests that needed to be accommodated. Why would they be concerned about the starting point? Let's say there's a man, Mr. Mr. Straw, and he uh, holds himself out as a gun buyer. He puts, you know, a website. He creates a website. He has uh, something in the Yellow Pages under Straw Man. And he says, you want to acquire a gun, and you don't want the the dealer to record your name, and you don't want to have an instant check on you. You come to me. And so these people come to him, and whenever they do, he goes to Joe's gun shop and uh, he, with, the, with the other person. He says, I want to buy a gun, but 
this fellow with me is going to do all the talking. So the guy who's with him talks with Joe about different types of guns, costs, and everything. And after that's done, uh, the, you know, the person who's done all the talking says, now my friend Mr. Straw is going to buy this gun. He gives Mr. Straw the money. Mr. Straw buys the gun. And, and the, the dealer writes down Mr. Straw's name for the 15th time that month, his address, does another instant check on it. What sense does that make? Your Honor, I think uh, — and to your first point about why, why starting points, the reason is because all that Congress wanted is to provide law enforcement with a way to trace the firearm. And if you have truthful, accurate information about the first initial purchaser, the person who walks out of a gun store with a gun in their hand, then law enforcement has that starting point if they need to trace the firearm. I, th- I suppose that your answer to what sense it's ma- it makes is that was the compromise, uh, that there was strong opposition to any gun control law. And the condition was you get the buyer. And you don't make the buyer promise not to give it to somebody else. He could immediately give it to somebody who's unqualified to own the gun, couldn't he? And w- would that be a violation? Your Honor, that would, that would violate other laws uh, because Congress in, in the Firearm Owners Protection Act uh, clarified that or, or, or amended the provision to provide that a private citizen who transfers a firearm to someone they know or have reasonable cause to believe is prohibited, that's a crime. What about somebody, uh, somebody who is qualified to own a firearm? Can I take a firearm that I own and, and say, you know, uh, it's yours? Yes, Your Honor. And uh, I think the government has conceded that if it's someone in your own state, there's — don't have to register it. I don't have to go through a firearm dealer, right? It's my gun, and I can give it to somebody else who's qualified. That's correct, Your Honor. And in uh, cases like Mr. Abramski's case, where his uncle lived in another state, Congress provided a path for those people as well, and that is you have to deliver the, the firearm to another dealer in that state uh, before finishing the transfer. You're never going to know who the end user is once the gun is sold. Whether you take the, uh, you know, the, the, the straw buyer's uh, name or the, or the other person's name or both, you don't know where the gun's going to end up, do you? Yes, sir. That's right, Your Honor. And that's because that, that was the key compromise of the well, language. language matters in a statute. I mean, I do believe that. And here the relevant language seems to me that, the, that, that what it's material to, the government says, is the statute about selling or delivering. Now, did this person, was he the buyer, your client? Was he somebody that they sold or delivered it to? Well, he's a straw. A straw purchaser is someone who doesn't purchase. The person who purchases is the person who uses the straw. Now, you can't say that about a giver. A, benef- a, a benefactor is, 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 is the pe- who is the beneficiary of the benefactor is not the purchaser. But the straw purchaser is not the purchaser. And it comes from straw bale, where someone else put up the bale. And it was called straw because the people who made a career of that used to wear straw in their shoes. Interesting. But in terms, in terms of, in terms of this case, the straw. He made is that. No, what? <laughs> no, I didn't. I thought it came from the Wizard of Oz, but it doesn't. The, 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 the fact is that is where it comes from. It, I think in every legal context, it means someone who is not the real. So who is the real? In this case, it is the person for whom the straw purchased. So we fit that within the language. We can't fit the beneficiary of a gift within the language. 
And that's the reason for the distinction. And so why not do it that way? With respect, Your Honor, I, I think that the principle you described of, of straw men or straw purchases, uh, in the context, historical context you described it, I don't believe is a criminal context. And we've not been able to find any case in which the criminal law has ever recognized that sort of civil agency law principle that when there is a principal-agent relationship, this fiduciary duty, that because the principal controls the agent or the straw man, that everything that the agent does is really an act of the principal. And Congress, there were historically criminal common law principles of agency. And Congress codified those principles in Title 18, uh, United States Code Section 2. Those are things like aiding and abetting, principles and accessories. But that's not the principle on which the government relies uh, today. The government you still have not explained what purpose is served by obtaining the name of the, the straw purchaser and doing an instant check on the straw purchaser. You said that it allows the tracing of the weapon, but that's not going to be true in the case of a straw purchaser because the person who uh, — the, the straw purchaser isn't necessarily and probably in the vast majority of cases isn't going to get the name or any information about the actual recipient. That's the whole purpose of having a straw purchaser. So then what purpose is served by this? It's just meaningless. With respect, Your Honor, I disagree. And I th the reason is, again, that the, the intent of Congress in the Gun Control Act was not to trace or track where firearms were going. And so in every case, because private sales have no record-keeping uh, or background check requirements, in every case where there's a trace of a firearm, the government has to go all the way back to the beginning. They go to the manufacturer with the serial number and follow the gun through the stream of commerce until they find that gun dealer where the gun was first sold. And then they, right, they find the gun dealer, and the gun dealer said, I, I sold it to Mr. Straw. And then they go to Mr. Straw, and Mr. Straw said, um, my client took it. Okay, who's your client? I have no idea. He came into my store. He came, you know, he contacted me. I didn't ask his name. He didn't give me his name. And that's the end of it. So no purpose is served by putting down the name, the address, doing the check on the straw purchaser. But, Your Honor, again, Congress understood that that's how the statute worked, because, for example — Well, what you're saying is they did a meaningless thing. That was the compromise. They would do something that's utterly meaningless. No, Your Honor. And the reason is, consider, for example, a circumstance where, instead of buying a firearm with the intent to resell it, five minutes after the purchase, walking out of the gun store, a stranger approaches you and says, that's a nice-looking gun. I'd like to buy it from you. It's perfectly legal under the Gun Control Act to sell the gun to that stranger, who then will leave, and again, in the tracing process, the government's trace will stop with that first purchaser. And Congress understood that that's how the process would work. And that was part of the compromise. What Congress wanted was accurate information about the initial person who acquires the firearm so at least they can try to do that trace. And Congress understood that in many cases — In some cases, they can't track it all the way. In this case, unlike the hypothetical that Justice Alita gave you, if they went to the straw, uh, to the straw purchaser, he would say, oh, I actually bought it for my uncle. And he'd give the uncle's name. And then the uncle would say, you know, where else uh, the, the firearm went from him? Yes, Your Honor. In fact, in this case, the government uh, received all the record-keeping and background check information that they could possibly have received. They got full federal paperwork from both Mr. Abramsky and his uncle and ran a background check on both. Your position is that uh, this was not a material misstatement. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, why isn't it material in light of the fact that it was a question that was on the government form that was uh, promulgated by — that was uh, directed by regulations? 
The reason, Your Honor, I think uh, this is a critical concession by the government. It's on pages 35 and 36 of their brief. Is the government acknowledges that the statements on the form are just an interpretive rule, and not even a sort of ordinary interpretive rule uh, that this Court may encounter with agency interpretations, where, where they're looking at the statute, and although they have not been delegated with authority to rulemake, they are interpreting the text of the statute. Here the government acknowledges that the statement is an interpretation of the case law about the straw purchaser doctrine. And the problem with that is that there's a split in the circuits about what that uh, case precedent should be. And the government's suggesting that, that this Court uh, should somehow defer to the statement on the form, that it has the power of law, that people should acknowledge it. But, of course, when you have a, a case law question like this where there's a split, this Court is the authority that decides what the law should be. And it's not required to defer at all to the statements on the form. Uh, Mr. Deese, could we go back to the question that Justice Alito raised? The the primary object of this statute is to keep guns out of the hands of felons, of people with mental illness, and so forth. Now, it's absolutely true, as you have said, that Congress didn't do everything it could have to achieve that result, right? That there are many kinds of resales that are allowable, that there are gifts that are allowable. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say that at the initial point of sale, which is where the entire system is set up, right, with the gun dealer doing the automatic checks, that at that initial point of sale, which is the centerpiece of this statute, that we will, that we will essentially disregard fronts, that we, you know, that we don't care that the person standing at the counter is a front. I mean, that goes far beyond the other kinds of resale possibilities that you're talking about. And I guess what I want to know is why you think a Congress that was geared towards this object of keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous people and set up a mechanism that had the gun seller be the kind of enforcer uh, at the point of sale would have thought, oh, it's fine if a front, if a straw walks in the door. I think the reason, Your Honor, is because uh, Congress understood that private sales, that there was an importance to private sales uh, between citizens. And in a straw purchase uh, like this, uh, or, or someone who's purchasing a gun intending to resell it to someone else, uh, that is precisely what's happening, is that second sale is a private transaction bete- between two private citizens. And Congress did not want any regulation of those types of sales, and that was part of the political compromise in the law. And so. Uh, yes, Your Honor, I acknowledge that uh, you could certainly describe this as, as not a comprehensive regime. There are holes in the legislation. But remember, too, that Congress was not operating in a vacuum. It understood that, although there may not be a national consensus about some of these issues, and therefore the regime that Congress chose may have some holes in it, that the states could fill those holes if there was a statewide consensus on that issue. And many states have done that. Uh, some states have Hawaii, for example, what is really a complete gun registration system. Uh, and others, like West Virginia, believe that there should be virtually no uh, regulation of these sorts of private sales at all. And so I think the system is working precisely as Congress intended. And if there are problems, uh, Congress will come back and fix it. And we've seen, for example, in the Firearm Owners Protection Act and in the Brady Act, that this is an area where Congress is continuing to observe what's going on uh, in the nation and making changes to the law as necessary. In in the situation that Justice Alito hypothesized of the person who's doing this several times a month and has the ad in the yellow pages, is that, is that person subject to regulation as a dealer? Yes, Your Honor. I, I wanted to make that point. And that is that, of course, if you engage in the business of purchasing 
uh, firearms to sell to others, then you'll, you will uh, at some point be subject to the licensing requirements that Congress created. So, again, this is not a system that has some obvious loophole where people can begin to engage in their own sort of uh, sale of guns to others. This is a situation where Congress wanted to leave open uh, the option for private citizens like Mr. Abramsky to purchase guns for other lawful gun owners like family members, uh, neighbors and friends. But this, this family member, the uncle, residing in Pennsylvania, he could not have purchased that gun in Virginia. Isn't that right? Because he's a non-resident. With respect, Your Honor, I, I disagree. It's, it's true that he could not have uh, walked into the gun store and left the gun store in Virginia with, with the gun, but he could have purchased it there. Congress created a means in the statute for the gun to then be shipped to a gun dealer in Pennsylvania, and he would have to pick up the gun and, again, fill out the federal forms and, and undergo a background check at that gun dealer in his home in Pennsylvania. But wouldn't he, wouldn't he have to comply with the uh, 552C, which says how somebody who doesn't show up in person can purchase a gun, and none of those requirements were satisfied here. So it seems to me that what you're asking is just an end run around what Congress said. If you're out of state and you want to buy it, this is how you have to do it. With respect, Your Honor, I don't think that's what Congress meant in Section 922C, which is the provision that deals with absent buyers. And the concern there was Congress wanted to leave open uh, two paths for gun buyers. One is to physically be present at the gun store and fill out the papers yourself where the gun dealer, as you're writing your name and age and your height and eye color on the forms, the, there's a person there looking at you. And there was also uh, an option that Congress provided for people to purchase a gun, for example, by telephone or mail or over the Internet, without ever actually being present, with no person being present in the gun store. And it was in that circumstance that Congress said, we think we need a little bit more record-keeping uh, in those cases. So that's why they required the affidavit, for example, and the, the waiting period to provide extra time uh, for local law enforcement in the background check. But that's not the situation here. Mr. Abramsky was physically present uh, at the gun store. And so that provision of the statute is not even implicated here. Uh, another point, Your Honor, is that, is that uh, the plain text uh, interpretation of the statute is one that uh, the agency, ATF, had adopted initially. In 1979, the agency sent a circular to gun dealers that took the, the precise position that that petitioner is taking here, which is that a purchase of a gun for another lawful gun owner is permissible. And in doing so, the, the agency said that that was an interpretation of the text of the Gun Control Act. What, what is the government's — I guess I should ask the government, but does the government contend that there are two buyers now, both — or uh, is the real buyer the, uh, uh, the person who sends in the straw man so that it's only his information that you have to give? Are there two buyers? Your Honor, I, I don't know the government's position, but yeah. our position is that there is one buyer — uh, and that's the person who's actually paying for the gun, filling out the forms, undergoing a background check, and leaving the gun uh, — leaving the gun store with the gun in their hand. And Congress didn't use terms like true buyer or true purchaser, actual buyer, because they were not concerned about the ultimate recipients of firearms or what happens to a gun after it leaves the gun store. The focus of the Gun Control Act is on that initial purchase and making sure that that purchase — What position are you taking here? Are you arguing — that it doesn't matter whether it's a straw purchaser or not. A buyer is a buyer is a buyer. It's the person who puts the money down on the counter. Or are you arguing 
as a, as a backup or as your main point, I don't understand that um, if it's a lawful buyer using a strawman, that that's not actionable. Yes, Your Honor. I, we are arguing, uh, yes, that the person who pays for the gun, the person that's there in the gun store and pays for the fire is the buyer. That is the — or the uh, — in fact, the term buyer isn't even used in the Even if their out, intent is to sell it to a prohibited person. That's correct, Your Honor. And, and in those circumstances, again, I think this is an important point, is that uh, Congress provided a number of means to prosecute illegal straw purchasers. And, and all of those provisions are still available uh, to the government, even if this Court was to disapprove the straw purchaser doctrine in, in all its applications. Well, if we disagreed with you on the first point about the straw purchaser, uh, would, you, would you lose on the ground that um, Mr. Abramsky's uncle could not have lawfully purchased the gun at that store because he wasn't a resident of the state? No, Your Honor. And then two points there. First, uh, as I mentioned, it, it would have been possible for Mr. Abramsky's uncle to purchase the gun in Virginia. He could have gone to that gun store and said, this is the gun I want, and paid the money. He would have had to go back. The gun would have had to have been shipped to Pennsylvania, and he would have had to take possession of it in Pennsylvania after filling out additional paperwork. But he couldn't have taken possession of it in, in Pennsylvania. In Virginia. In Virginia. That's correct, Your Honor. But, again, I don't think uh, that that changes the materiality analysis, because, again, the question is not whether Mr. Abramsky's uncle could have picked up or bought the gun in Virginia. The question is, if Mr. Abramsky had told the gun dealer the truth, that, yes, I plan to uh, buy this gun, but I'm going to take it up to Pennsylvania and give it to my uncle after I deliver it to a gun dealer there, the way that, that Congress wrote the Gun Control Act, the gun dealer still could have sold the gun to Mr. Abramsky. And that's or would why it have been a lawful sale? if the gun had been delivered to him on the spot? To Mr. Abramsky's uncle? Yeah. Uh, Mr. He could Mr. not Ar Mr. Abramsky's out of the picture. The uncle goes in, buys the gun, puts down a Pennsylvania address. The dealer gives him the gun, walks out of the store. That, would that be a lawful sale? No, Your Honor. No, Mr. Abramsky's uncle could not, take could not have bought the gun in another state, taken possession of it. But, again, for the materiality question, uh, the way this Court has described that uh, standard in Kungus, is uh, whether if Mr. Abramsky had provided truthful information, if that would have been capable of influencing the outcome in that case. Well, in describing what happened here, you, 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 you said that Abramsky went in and then went to Pennsylvania and gave the gun to his uncle. That's not quite correct. Uh, he, he transferred it to him for consideration. I had thought, and this was, goes back to Justice Scalia's question, question about if there's one buyer here or two, I had thought that it might be possible that you can to construct a case where uh, Bransky tells his uncle, I'm going to buy the gun, and then I'm going to sell it to you, and I'm going to sell it to you in Pennsylvania uh, at a gun dealer's uh, uh, store so we can fill out the necessary forms. Would the government then have objected to what happened here? Your Honor, I, think I mean, we can ask the government, yes. as Justice Scalia indicates, but under, as you understand their case. Yes, Your Honor, I think the reason is that the government's position is that you cannot buy a gun intending to sell it to another lawful gun owner. That, that is the government's position. Uh, but just one point of clarification is, uh, uh, to the extent it's relevant, Mr. Abramsky did not receive consideration uh, for the purchase of the firearm. The record indicates that his uncle sent him a check to cover the cost of the gun. This was, in all respects, uh, someone doing a favor for a family member. Could um, you address the other, the other point here, which is the one I have more trouble with, to tell you the truth? Count two? Yes, Your Honor. 
And uh, that count, uh, the language that Congress chose was uh, that one cannot make a false statement about information required by this chapter to be kept. Right. Uh, this chapter meaning uh, Chapter 44, the, the Gun Control Act itself. And the Gun Control Act contains, it actually references, there's a provision, and that's 922b5, where Congress says this is the information, it uses that term required to be kept, and it lists three things, the name, age, and place of residence uh, of the person acquiring the gun from the gun dealer. And then ATF has promulgated regulations that have added an additional layer of uh, information that must be included uh, on the forms. But the government's position, of course, this question 11, what, who is the actual buyer, that's not one of the things that's included either in the text of the Gun Control Act or in ATF's regulations. And what the government has said in this case is, well, that's right, but we view uh, the authorization of Congress to create the form sort of a blanket authorization to put — ask whatever we want in the form and make anything that we ask in the form information required to be kept. Can you lie in, in answering questions that the government has no — no — technical right to answer? I mean, let, uh, let's assume I agree with you that, uh, that in fact, uh, uh, this information was — the government was not authorized to obtain this information, and therefore it was not required to be kept. But nonetheless, they asked it, and your, your client didn't, didn't just say, I won't answer. He lied. Now, can, can, can you lie uh, so long as the question is uh, improper? No, no, I think the key in this case is that uh, Congress included a materiality element for almost every false statement that would occur in this context. And they enacted a separate statute that did not have that materiality requirement. And the reason was Congress wanted to be sure that that provision that did not have the materiality requirement only applied to the false statements that Congress thought were the very important ones. And therefore, they delineated what those — that category of statements was. And, and the question on the form is not one of them. And that — your Honor, is the reason why uh, Mr. Abramsky cannot be convicted under that provision. I'd, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Palmore. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> I think it would be helpful if I could, at the outset, frame what I see as the issues here, because as some of the questioning revealed, Petitioner is making two separate arguments. His first argument is, in a sense, that there is no such thing as a scoff purchaser doctrine. I take that actually as a falsity argument. He's saying, when I answered that I was the purchaser, that was a true statement because I'm the only purchaser who counted for purposes of the statute because I was the one standing there and I was the one filling out the form. His second argument is an alternative argument, as I understand it, and he says, even assuming I'm wrong about the first argument and that this statement was false, that that falsehood was not material because my uncle was legally eligible to possess a firearm. So I'd like to take those two arguments in, in order. As to the first, are there two buyers, in your view? I think, in, in a sense, there, you could understand there to be two buyers. The buyer who counts under the statute, though, is the actual buyer. Well, what does, what does the uh, person who's buying for somebody else, he has to provide both names or just the name of the real buyer? Justice Scalia, if, if you hypothesize a situation in which two roommates wanted to buy a firearm together, firearms are expensive, they can't each afford their own, but they want one for personal protection. And if one went into the store and said, I'm buying this firearm for myself and my roommate who's not here, that transaction could not lawfully go forward because 
the two buyers of the of the firearm weren't in the store and they weren't physically present and they didn't go through all the, all the statutory screening and, and both of them had to take possession, right? Right. In that sense, right, right, because the, the but whole — that's p- not the case here. The, the person who paid took possession, was authorized to take possession. In the straw purchaser cases, the person takes possession in an ephemeral sense. They are merely the conduit. The, the whole — the purpose and effect of the transaction is to deliver that firearm where, to someone else. So where in this — I'm sorry. So there are two buyers, and both of them have to be on the form. If there are two buyers, if two people of no, roommates no, one, are buying, straw they, buyer. Each, they would each need to — I them. can understand you're saying the real buyer is, is the person who put up the money. Well, of course, the form tells you who the real buyer is, and it's a, for, it's a substance over form inquiry. And the te- we think this is supported by not only the text, but also the structure and purpose of the Gun Control Act. Where, where in the Act <coughs> does uh, — is the basis for the requirement on the form? The form says, you know, if you're not the actual person, you're buying for somebody else, blah, blah, blah. Where is that in the statute? That is a — that is a, uh, a ATF's reasonable interpretation of the statute, and I was just going to get to that. It's current about. one. It used to have a different one. That's current one, and that has been consistent for the last 20 years, Justice Scalia. So the, st- the statute, we think both the text and the structure and purpose support this view. The text is — is most readily identifiable in Section 922A6 itself, which this Court in Huddleston — A6? 922A6, which is the count — count one uh, of the — of the conviction. It's the false statement provision at issue here. And this is quoted at pages one through two of the government's brief. So the, the provision says it shall be unlawful for any person in connection with the acquisition or attempted acquisition of a firearm, and it goes on. And it talks — then it, at the end it talks about the lawfulness of the sale or other disposition of such firearm. This case isn't the first one in which the Court has had occasion to interpret those terms. In Huddleston, the Court looked at those terms, in particular acquisition and disposition, and it said several things about those terms that are relevant here. It said those terms are meant to have a practical common sense meaning in terms of who will become into possession and control of a firearm as the result of a transaction with a federally regulated dealer. And they don't turn on formal notions of legal title, title. And that with respect to disposition in particular, that it was that Congress meant to give ad- broad effect to this term. Um, and so we think that the same kind of practical common sense inquiry is applicable here. When looking at the transaction, the question is, what is the ultimate purpose and effect of this transaction? Is it to, to have someone else acquire the firearm? Yeah, this is broad. It isn't the language. His point is that I think that the uh, statute, it has to be material to the lawfulness of the sale. Now we look to see what section is it material to. And you say in your brief it's material to the section that says you have two of them, but they come to the same thing, selling or delivering any firearm to any person. All right. Now, he says, did they sell or deliver this firearm to what you call the real purchaser? He says, no. They sold or delivered it to the straw. And that's the end of the matter. And at least the statute is open to this interpretation, and it's a criminal statute. And besides, the ATF for a long time interpreted it that way. So what we should do is interpret it strictly. That's, I think, the basis of their argument, if I understand it. And so you have to get those words sale and deliver and explain how in the criminal statute they apply to what you're calling the real purchaser. 
Right, Justice Breyer. The statute uses a number of different terms to connote what we take to be uh, a substance over form inquiry into the actual possession and control of the firearm. So in 922A6, as we were just talking about, it talks about acquisition, sale, or disposition. But you also material, the need for it to be material to the lawfulness of the sale. Correct. You seem to concede that in the brief. It yes, needs to be yes, material, and there, and there are two sections, and both come to the same thing, which is what I said. So this is, this is where we get back to the fact that there are two different issues in this case. If I convince you that there was a false statement here, because petitioner's uncle was the actual purchaser. Oh. Uh, if he was, if he then, if he is the actual purchaser, yeah. then he falls within the term of a person to whom the firearm was sold or delivered. That's your argument. And his name wasn't put on the form. Oh, well, there's no question about that. Right. So, if I could just finish one other thought on this first issue of falsity, um, and as Justice Sotomayor and Justice Alito's hypotheticals demonstrated, under petitioner's view of the statute. I could approach someone in the parking lot outside of a licensed dealer. I could say, would you like to make a quick buck? Please come in with me. I could point to the firearm I want. I could hand him the money. I could look over his shoulder as he fills out Form 4473 in his own name. I could watch the dealer run that person's uh, name and identity through the criminal background check. And as we leave the shop together, he could hand me that firearm. Why is that any, why is that any more horrible than, than the notion that as soon as I buy it, I walk out of the store and I meet this guy in the parking lot. He says, hey, that's a nifty-looking gun there. Uh, how much did you pay for it? He says, you know, I paid uh, $600. I'll give you 700 Oh, it's yours. Right? I can hand it to him, can't I? You could, Justice so, yes, so, 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 so the notion that the gun would somehow get into the hands of somebody who, you know, who wasn't registered or who couldn't buy it himself, I mean, that's going to happen anyway. This — what, what you assert does not stop that problem. Justice Scalia, Congress was obviously balancing a number of interests when it enacted these provisions. If you read the, the text of the statute in the legislative history, it's clear that Congress thought the principal problem was effectively unregulated sales of firearms from dealers. That's the problem it wanted to focus on. And you're right that it didn't want to go further and intrude on private transactions among unlicensed individuals. It drew a line, and it, but it drew a line at a point where it thought the actual problem was. And that line was up to and including the point of sale. When Mr. Palmer, when the agency changed its view in 1994, there was no change in the statutory text, was there? There was not, Justice Ginsburg. And at that time, the interpretation was that you committed the uh, offense if you so sold if the uh, person, the true buyer, uh, was an unlawful, a, a person to whom firearms could not be sold, but if you, if the ultimate uh, possessor was a lawful possessor, then there was no liability. So. The, the, the statute has to be open at least to, to, to either interpretation. No change in the words. The agency read it one way and then later changed its mind and read it the other way. That's right, Justice Ginsburg. And I think that takes us to the second issue here, which is the materiality issue. And I think what happened was that the agency's earlier view of the statute was essentially overtaken by the case law in several respects. And the, and the agency, therefore, updated its view and has consistently applied that view for the last 20 years. Yeah, but still, look, 
what I thought was a very good argument on your side is exactly what I said of the narrow interpretation would also apply to a straw man who buys a gun for Al Capone. And so this, this, this part of the statute would be virtually worthless. Their response to that is don't worry about that. There are plenty of other provisions that will take care of that. Are there? And if it's so obvious about the Al Capone, why did the ATF decide it their way for 20 years? I mean, how, how, how did they get into that? Justice Breyer, I think that, that the other provisions that Petitioner is referring to is 922D, which makes it unlawful for anyone, licensed or unlicensed, to transfer a firearm to someone in a prohibited category if the transferor knows or has reasonable cause to believe that the person is in a prohibited category. And that is a completely inadequate substitute for what the kind of regulation we're talking here for a, for a variety of reasons. One is the mens rea requirement that I just mentioned. So on my, my hypothetical involving the parking lot, the person, the straw purchaser doesn't even know my name, much less anything about my background, whether I was dishonorably discharged from the military, whether I had mental health issues. He doesn't know anything about me. He has no reason to ask. I certainly have no motivation to tell him. And yet that transaction can go forward, and there could be it would be very difficult to prosecute that straw purchaser for uh, an illegal transfer if it turned out that I was a felon. Second is the whole purpose of this structure of this statute, especially after it was amended in the early 90s, was to not — was to put in place and reinforce a dealer-based regulatory system in which the eligibility of firearm transferees is determined based on a search through a database. We don't take the, even the transfer — transferees say so as to whether or not he's an eligible person. I he has think to fill out very, the form. It's very problematic to talk about the overriding purpose when you're dealing with a very sensitive compromise. Well, I, there's, as far as I can tell, nothing in the language of the statute that talks about straw men or actual buyers or anything like that. You're right, Your Honor. Just as there's nothing in the mail or wire fraud statute that talks about Ponzi schemes. That a Ponzi scheme is simply well, a way — Well, but there wasn't a strong lobby in Congress saying we're the group that supports Ponzi schemes. Uh, so maybe it makes more sense to have a broad construction of that provision. This language is fought over tooth and nail by people on the, you know, gun control side and the um, uh, gun ownership side. And to say — you look at it and say, well, the purpose is this, even though there's no words in the statute that have anything to do with straw purchasers, I think is very problematic. Well, Your Honor, I think we do have a textual argument, which I referred to before. But there's also — it's not just a purpose argument. It's a contextual and structural argument. And it's the one that Justice Alito alluded to in his well, You agree that in Justice Alito's example, that person is uh, regulated as a gun dealer, right? At a certain point, a person, if, if they're operating — The yellow pages. If right. If they're, if they're operating as a seller of firearms, they would have to register. Well, I amend my hypothetical. So he doesn't have — he doesn't put it in the yellow pages and he doesn't put it on the Internet. He just hangs around in the parking lot of Joe's to accommodate people who — and Joe's is near the border, and he wants to accommodate people who may take it and they <coughs> wish to uh, employ him as a straw purchaser. Right. You wouldn't think of prosecuting him, would you? <laughs> I mean, at a certain point, if, it, if, the, if the conduct is so pervasive and regular, if he's acting as a dealer, then you might be able to get him on that separate provision. But you're right, before that point, you wouldn't necessarily be able to, and that would be a perfectly lawful, uh, lawful c conduct. And it's also important to talk — we were talking, Justice Breyer, about — Before you go on, I, yep. I wanted to get back to the Al Capone hypothetical. As I understand Petitioner's uh, uh, case here, 
he, I don't think he's asserting that if Al Capone, if, if he intended to transfer it to Al Capone, that his statement would not have been material. His position is, since I intended to transfer it to somebody who could lawfully possess it, the statement was immaterial. And my point, Justice Scalia, is that in a straw purchase context, you're not necessarily going to know you're dealing with Al Capone or someone of his record. These are often cases in which people have an ephemeral relationship. They may not even know each other's names. Well, Mr. Palmore, I, I, is that right? I thought that Mr. Dietz's argument went beyond what Justice Scalia just said, that for Mr. Dietz, regard, you can, you, he might be uh, prosecuted under another statute for selling something to somebody he knows as Al Capone, but that, uh, that he would, be, you know, because he was the guy at the counter and he was buying for somebody else, uh, as to this question of material representation, it does not matter whether the ultimate transferee was Al Capone or somebody else. I think that's right, Justice Kagan, and that's his first argument, and what I take to be his main submission is essentially that his statement was true. I think he said that just right right up here. It was true, so you don't even get to the materiality question. So that's right. That subsequent transfer might separately be a violation if he knows or has reasonable cause to believe that the transferee is in a prohibited category. I would just point out, though, that that would not have been the case from 1968 to 1986, because 922D, which prohibits uh, transfers to um, ineligible uh, transferors, I'm sorry, transferees, applied only to licensed dealers until 1986. It didn't apply to, to private individuals. So the kind of straw purchase on behalf of Al Capone, as I understand it under petitioner's theory, would have been perfectly legal from 1968 to 1986, even if it was knowing. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, we talked a little bit before about how ATF's view kind of caught up with the case law. And I think some of that case law is actually quite helpful here for illuminating the materiality question. And it's the Crandall case from the First Circuit that we talk about in the brief. If petitioner is correct that the materiality of a false statement uh, turns on whether the ultimate, uh, in this context, whether the ultimate uh, purchaser or, or the actual transferee of the firearm was eligible or not. It's unclear why a, a, someone seeking to buy a gun from a federally regulated dealer couldn't go in, provide a false name, and provide a false identification, and receive a gun. And then if he's prosecuted for that false statement, he could defend, as the defendant in Crandall tried to defend, saying, well, it didn't really matter because I'm actually eligible. So even if you'd known my true name and had my true non-forged ID, you would have sold me the gun. So it's not material. The courts of appeals and the lower courts have consistently rejected that argument. And what those courts hold is that in all cases, the lawfulness of the sale of a firearm from a regulated dealer is contingent on the recording, confirming, and after 1993, screening of the identity of the purchaser. And this, this now you're talking about the second question. Correct. And the provision that makes the, uh, the information that's required, makes it material, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is 922B5, right? That's, That's what requires that. Okay, now all that says is you have to keep the information uh, of the person to whom you're transferring the firearm. So your argument has to be when somebody sees the person, they realize that that means not somebody who's buying it for somebody else, right? 
Right. And if you're with me on the straw purchase idea that this was a false statement because the purpose and effect of the transaction was to — for the uncle to acquire the firearm, then that was a false statement. Then the actual yes, yes, I know. If I assume you're — if I assume you're right, then you're right. If you assume but I'm right on issue one, then I think the materiality on issue two follows directly from — from this provision that you've quoted, 922b5. And I think — Because then per — person you know carries with it the concept of not just the person to whom it's transferred, which is what 922b5 says, but the fact that it has to be the actual person who ends up with the gun. Yes, and I think the term needs to be looked at in context. It's not just 922b5. There's also 922t, which is the Brady provisions. And the talk, there it talks about transfer. So we talked before about how there are different terms that are used. Well, 922t which says that you can't T. The T. Where, where, where is that? This is on page 13. No, I apologize, Justice Scalia. There's not an appendix, but this is quoted in relevant part on page 13 of our brief. So 922T says that the, the no transfer of a firearm can take place unless the identity of the of transferee is confirmed with a photo identification and unless that identity is screened through a database to ensure that that person is eligible. See, I would have thought that if you're right on question one, 922T just makes this a slam dunk on question two. And there's a question about whether you are right on question one. But if you are, T says, look, the dealer is supposed to check the transferee, right? And if we assume that when when Congress says the transferee, it's the real transferee, not the fake transferee, the dealer is supposed to check the real transferee. So what does the dealer think is material? I mean, the question is, what does a reasonable dealer think is material? I better know who you are so I can check you. That's material. I think that's right, Justice Kagan. I think that anyone looking at 922b5, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts. I can't look at all these things because they're not in your brief. I, I really, I really resent, especially in statutory cases, not having the statute in front of us. I shouldn't have to flip through your, your brief to, to see what page you cite, a little snippet from one section of it. You're right, you're right, Justice Scalia. I apologize for not including a fuller statutory appendix in this brief. Um, but the point is of 922b5, when it asks for the name of the buyer, one would ask, well, what, what reason, why is this name relevant? Why is this question being asked? And this goes to Justice Alito's observation about the structure and purpose of the statute. This name is clearly being asked because Congress cared very much about preventing anonymous sales of firearms. It cared very much about having a record of who that first buyer was. Well, it's not just the structure. It's not just the, the overriding purpose. 922T says that the dealer is supposed to check the transferee to find out whether the transferee has a, a criminal record, to find out whether the transferee has mental illness. So who does he check? Who is the transferee? Well, I need to know who the transferee is to make that check. So obviously it's material to know who the transferee is. I, I agree, because the, the, those requirements would be pointless if they could be satisfied. Well, but it's going to be the same problem, which is the straw, because the transferee in context probably refers to the pe- person to whom the dealer transferred the weapon, namely the buyer. And uh, does it apply, for example, if he knows that the buyer is going to give the, the uh, weapon to another person? And you will say no. And he's not the transferee, the other person. You admit that. You say it. And, and so why is the person to whom 
the man who puts up the cash is going to later transfer the weapon is the same question as to whether he is really the purchaser. I just don't see a difference. And therefore, I thought that the, you can explain to me why there's a difference. I, I'd like to know that. And I guess I'd like to bring you back to, right. the, to, the, to, to that issue. And I'd, I'd just like to know how the ATF reached the contrary conclusion, if it would so undermine the statute. Well, just, Justice Breyer, a couple points about this. One, as we talked about before, we think Huddleston suggests that these terms, and Huddleston was interpret, interpreting acquisition and disposition, and it gave — it was stressed that these had a practical, common-sense meaning about who was going to obtain possession or control of the firearm as a result of the transi- transaction, as a direct result of the transaction. And what about the donee? The ATF has never interpreted this provision to, uh, to prohibit gifts, and a gift recipient is in no sense a party to the gift giver's purchase of the gift. Uh, that's just not the way we think of gifts. Uh, the purchaser may change his mind. The purchaser is not acting at the direction and control of the gift recipient. And in ATF's experience, there's not a problem with gift recipients. You don't think uh, that uh, crime uh, bosses — I'm sorry. You don't think crime bosses look at their — underlings, pay them a lot of money for whatever they're doing, and just say, go get me a gun and give it to me? Well, I think that that I, — I would suggest that that wouldn't be a gift under that scenario, Justice Sotomayor. Why? If that person is working for the crime boss and it's part of his duties to go obtain a gun, then he's buying that gun on behalf of the crime boss. Could the, you the, answer the, Justice Kennedy's question? Is, is, is this all contingent on the intent at the moment? I mean, you had a lovely wrapped case here because you had the — uh, money transferred before the purchaser. So there's no question that the intent was to purchase for the uncle. But what about the situation where there's a conversation beforehand that says, I'm going to buy the gun and I'll sell it to you afterwards? I think the question — there could be a factual question in some of these cases. The question would be, was that purchase made on behalf of someone else? Um, there's no factual issue here. This was a guilty plea. So we have to assume that this transaction was made on behalf of the uncle as a factual matter. Petitioner disputes whether that matters legally or not. And I'm not sure what you mean. I gave you a hypothetical. What, what, right. In your, hypo- in your hypothetical, I think that would be a straw purchase. That purchase was made, even if the money was going to come later, that purchase was made on behalf of the absent party. And it can't proceed oh. for a variety of reasons. The this is a criminal statute. And, and you're saying that when, when I buy it and I told somebody I'll sell it to you later, that I am acting as an agent, and, wow, it's a criminal statute. Justice Scalia, the, in Huddleston, is helpful in this regard, too. There was a notice rule of lenity argument made there, because the person in that case wasn't actually buying the firearm. He had pawned it to the pawn shop, and he was redeeming it. And he came in and said, I'm not buying it. I'm just getting my own property back. I'm not buying it or acquiring it. And the Court relied, in rejecting that argument, relied in part on Form 4473, because it provided notice that he had to check these boxes and had to truthfully answer the question. I think it's rare that you get a case with this degree of notice when the, when the defendant is actually committing the offense and making the false statement. He's told in bold letters right in front of him not to do what he's about to do, and it, and it includes a, a hypothetical. Well, he's not told that in the statute. 
He's told that in a form that was quite different from the form that was used before. That's right, uh, Chief Justice Roberts. It's a form that's been used consistently for, for 20 years. And for the reasons that we've said, we think that the, the current view of the ATF and the express instructions on the form are actually the most consistent with the statute, because the statute requires identification of a firearm purchaser to be recorded, confirmed, and screened in every case. That's not contingent on the person turning out to be eligible or not. Congress wanted to prevent anonymous sales of firearms, and it had a purpose, obviously, to keep As out of whether or not there was a sale, suppose the facts in this case, it was a Glock, I think, yes. was, was, was delivered, and suddenly uh, the uh, Abramsky finds that it's a valuable collector's item. There were only two or three of these made. It had a special trigger or something. Um, and it's now immensely valuable. Uh, could the uncle uh, insist that it be sold to him for the $700 or for the, for the agreed price, for the $400 thing? I think it's not clear, Justice Kennedy. There might, well, if it might be a contract. If it isn't, then there them. wasn't. Then there, there was a subsequent sale. Right. But, of course, here there's no subsequent sale because the check was um, written before. Well, I'm asking about that. Right. I think if, if, if the petitioner changed his mind um, and decided not to actually transfer it, I think as a technical matter that wouldn't affect the legality because what mattered was, was he making a, a purchase on behalf of another and entering a false statement at the time he made it? A fact question could arise in a, in a situation like that, which a defendant could argue, I wasn't actually making the purchase on behalf of someone else, and that argument is supported by subsequent events. Um, but I think we, we were — I was about to say that the one critical purpose of the statute, obviously, was to keep firearms out of the hands of ineligible persons. But another critical purpose was to allow for the tracing of firearms and to prevent the anonymous stockpiling of firearms. And with respect to that purpose, I think the facts of some of the cases underlying the circuit split in, uh, on the second issue of materiality are quite salient. Those are all cases in which eligible parties wanted to anonymously obtain large quantities of firearms for illicit reasons. They were eligible, but they had — they wanted to not have their name associated with the transaction. So Polk, which is the Fifth Circuit case, which is actually on petitioner's side, that person wanted to uh, anonymously acquire firearms to create a stockpile to attack an IRS building, to kill police officers, and to assassinate a judge. But he was eligible. In Frazier and Morales, which are the Eleventh and Sixth Circuit cases addressing this materiality issue, they were straw purchases on behalf of eligible buyers, but they were, again, wanting to anonymously stockpile weapons and not have their names associated with them because they were smuggling them out of the country. And the petitioner's view of the statute in which a straw purchaser can satisfy the requirement that the first transaction at the point of sale be recorded would completely satisfy the statutory requirements, would greatly impair the ability of ATF to trace firearms and to have an accurate record of who that first purchaser of the firearm was. If there are no further questions, we'd ask that the judgment of the Court of Appeals be affirmed. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Dietz, you have four minutes. <clears throat> Justice Ginsburg, you asked uh, Counsel whether uh, this was the case where there were two interpretations of the statute. Counsel conceded that there were. I think that's an important point because, of course, we're dealing with a criminal statute. If there are two interpretations under very well-settled precedent from this Court, uh, the Court applies the interpretation that's favorable to the criminal defendant, and that's part of the doctrine of criminal law. Uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, you, you mentioned the, uh, the agency situation uh, that existed here between Mr. Abramsky and his uncle. And here, 
I think it's important to note that, that there wasn't even any consideration. This was truly uh, a purchase. It was just a favor for a family member. And the, the government, uh, in order to advance this straw purchaser theory that historically uh, came from civil common law, uh, there needs to be a relationship between Mr. Abramsky and his uncle that uh, is a fiduciary relationship, where Mr. Abramsky is required to act in his uncle's best interests at all times. And that, for example, if he left the gun store and someone said, hey, did you just pick up a Glock, I'll buy it for you for $500, that Mr. Abramsky could not even enter into that sale without providing his uncle with, with any money he made from that sale. And there's, there's a complex set of civil agency law principles that apply here that just don't translate uh, to the straw purchaser doctrine, as we've described it. And I think that's a fundamental flaw in the government's theory, is that the courts just have never thought through all of the various situations that apply in these fiduciary relationships and how you would apply them to situations where you're just buying a gun for a family member or something of that nature. I also wanted to turn to the gift exception. There's also another exception the government acknowledges, and that's for uh, raffles and contests at charities or, you know, political fundraisers. And so in that circumstance, uh, the person who's buying the gun knows uh, that they're giving it to a complete stranger and uh, someone who, by random chance, wins the right to own the gun. But in those cases, the government says there's no need at the time that you buy the gun to take any steps to ensure there's record-keeping or a background check on that person. And I think that undermines this idea that everyone receiving a gun as it's in the chain from the gun dealer, Congress wants to have a background check. Congress is concerned about providing enough information to allow for tracing uh, and nothing more. And as a final point, Your Honors, I I think perhaps the most important point in in this case is if the Court rejects the straw purchaser doctrine uh, as as it applies in this case to a lawful gun owner buying for another, there are really no harmful consequences. The government retains a very robust toolbox of criminal statutes to prosecute illegal straw purchasers, those who buy guns to get them into the hands of prohibited persons. And the government will receive accurate, truthful information about that first sale so they can trace firearms when they're used in the commission of a crime. So the only thing the straw purchaser doctrine in this case uh, really accomplishes is to prohibit a law-abiding citizens from buying guns for other law-abiding citizens. And that's something that Congress expressly chose not to do. And we would ask this Court to remain faithful to the statutory scheme actually enacted by well, Congress. If we agreed with you on the, on the second argument, uh, would the government have to prove that the person to whom the straw purchaser transferred the gun was ineligible, or would it be a defense if it was shown that the person was eligible? I think the government would have the burden there, Your Honor, and I think the government has suggested they, they provide an example of a circumstance where the, the person who bought the gun uh, was buying it for someone named, I believe, Almanio, who they had no idea who that was. But, and yes, in that circumstance, the government would need to prove that that person was prohibited. But I think in circumstances like that, where you're buying guns for someone you don't even know who that person is, the, the government may well have evidence in that case that you either knew or had reasonable cause to believe that that person was prohibited from possessing a gun. Yeah, but the other purpose that they said this provision has is to get gun dealers to run checks. And you can't run a check if the name isn't there. That's right, Ron. And, of course, you can't run a check on someone who wins the gun in a raffle or yeah, yeah, but the other well problem that we're back to the language. Uh, the, 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 you, they say your client, you know, falls within the language, and you say he doesn't. You say, all right, great. Forget it. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Case is submitted.